Okay, so welcome back. It's Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies. I'm Tim Lindsay. And I'm Christian Bonner. We're recording live via satellite today. Uh, I was at Christian's place yesterday and we uh, did a little quick clean and rip of the vinyl version of Confess in the Blues, which we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, But we didn't really have time because it's such an arduous process to clean eight sides of vinyl. Or was that 10 sides? Uh, Yeah, it's 10. Yeah, so we didn't actually get around to recording the podcast, so we're doing it today a little bit groggily and worse for wear. It's the end of the year, so nothing really gets done anyway, so... No, everything's grinding to a halt. The roads are slick. Uh, Santa is stuck in the chimney. But uh, we have this box set to talk about. Uh, we also have a couple other things we're going to try and cover today. The big news, of course, is that the Stones are going back uh, across the USA for the No Filter 2019 tour. Yeah, and uh, we have secured tickets for both shows in Chicago, and you're going... To Newark? Yeah, I'm going to Jersey night two. Uh, East Rutherford, New Jersey, which will be a treat, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, we've all heard about this, right? You've all been like following the official Stones social media. It's not just us that you're listening to, right? Out well, I, I hope so. I mean, we don't. I, I don't think they really need our help doing the marketing. No. But it's exciting to see uh, the end of a leg of a tour. Um, yeah. they're, they're also not going to be too... Rusty because they've been touring this year, and That's they've right. only only taken a few months. They're they're probably back in the studio um, in February or March. That's what they've been saying. Yeah, I think they'll be getting ready, gearing up uh, in the spring, and hopefully, you know, this means that after this tour is over, there's nothing stopping them from finally completing the studio album that's been promised for so many years. Yeah, I just learned that there is uh, in Woody's book. Um, yeah, the uh, set lists book. Th- yeah. There is a title, uh, at least a working title, called Get Out of My Way, Brackets, Give Me the Cash. Which is an amazing title for a yeah. Rolling Stone song. And, you know, I think that it is interesting with the interview, uh, the two interviews that I've read of Mick and Keith's, where they both say that they want to finish this new record. And Mick even said, you know, I think it's a shame we haven't done more new material. And I agree, uh, this has been, this makes the period between a Bridge to Babylon and a Bigger Bang seem uh, downright. A modest uh, yeah. break by comparison, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, Blue and Lonesome, we've spoken at length about how we would have preferred uh, original material. But you know what, like three years of, of touring basically just for that record, and, you know, obviously they're touring the catalog as well, and people are there to see the big hits, but they have been playing the blues stuff pretty frequently on stage. Well, and it's uh, good that they're revitalizing their own interest in playing music, too. Yeah. So I think that's what matters. And Keith, Keith is playing relatively sober these days, it seems. Oh, no, so he's, he, he's not drinking, and yeah. he's, he's off drugs entirely. So I think that... I think it can that, only be good. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a good sign. Um, I know people I, are slightly shocked to hear that, but uh, we don't endorse Keith Richards on drugs and alcohol. Yeah, I mean, and and if he's not going to be able to do it, what hope do you have? Yeah, uh, true. As a normal person, so um, that's all good news. I mean, yeah. I don't I don't want the forty licks or the bigger bang sort of not interested Keith performances. With looking at these nineties. DVDs. I I really missed how engaged he used to be. 
Yeah, so we we did briefly take a look through uh, the Voodoo Lounge Uncut. We played some of your vinyl version. I, I've listened um, to it like eight times. I don't know what you yeah. mean by br- briefly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've also I've looked at the Blu-ray and I've I've listened to the CDs a bunch of times. I've listened to the MQA version on streaming. We'll probably do a whole separate episode or a couple of episodes just on that show alone. But we'll, the we'll Miami focus, show, yeah, the Miami '94 uh, uh, and uh, Jersey bonus tracks. Yeah, um, we we'll, we can talk about that in a whole separate episode, I guess, in the new year. But for for now, let's just focus on. Um, I guess confessing the blues and what can only be described as Abco's counter programming, uh, the 50th anniversary beggars banquet deluxe. Yeah, let's let's do that first because I think there's less to say about that. Um, yeah, so this is a, this is a new remaster. I think a couple people were confused as to whether it was just a repackaging, but it is. Um, although they have reverted to the the original invitation card cover, it is essentially a new transfer of the stereo mix. Uh, done by Bob Ludwig specifically for this high-resolution digital transfer. And the reviews so far, I neither of us have bought this, uh, basically because, we, as we suspected, it's really not that much of an upgrade, if any, from the 2002 remaster. Yeah, I, I mean, I've gone on at length about how the 2002 um, is, I feel, the best it's going to sound. Um, but... When I went out to Sunrise Records, and I'd like to just say to anyone in Toronto that Sunrise Records still exists. Yeah, they're holding and, it down, and they have they have a great selection of physical media. They really know what's up, and you should go um, spend all your money there. Yeah, if if anywhere, I think they're probably the last game in town still carrying these deluxe vinyl box sets, pretty close to release date. And they had every single from the Vault series. Mm-hmm. They had a great selection of this, and the the thing was, I was in there and I saw the fiftieth. Beggar's Banquet, and I saw that it was actually more than the three-disc Voodoo and John Cut vinyl. Yeah, by significant and, amount, right? It's a it's close to a hundred bucks retail and, list. Yeah, and especially when you consider that there's no real bonus tracks to speak of, not not studio versions that we haven't heard before. I mean, yeah, th- there's the mono version of Sympathy. Yeah, but there's nothing that we've heard in bootlegs or that we know exists. None of the Jean-Luc Godard versions of right. of Sympathy for the Devil. There's there isn't that jam that I think became Child of the Moon. Yeah, I did spring for that Blu-ray of the Godard movie, and it's it's also a little bit disappointing because although it is a visual upgrade, that the soundtrack is has not really been touched in any way. So I don't know who knows where those tapes have gone. They didn't include any here, but maybe that's just because you know Abco is contractually um, constrained from releasing unreleased stuff. I, I don't believe, I, I think it's this, I think, and, and this is a very cynical comment, but I think this is the case. I think that they were blindsided by the Beatles white album, 50th anniversary, and they scrambled to throw something together. Mm. And this is minimum viable product. Yeah. Abco really sort of let the side down here. I must say like stacked up side by side, you know, I'm not a big fan of the whole Beatles versus Stones debate. I think it's tiresome. Well, it's obvious but- that the Stones are better. Yeah, and in our opinion, obviously, you know, musically, there's no real way to slice it other than the Stones continued from strength to strength long after the Beatles imploded. Um, You know, you want to go tit for tat about the 60s, that's another argument, but I think it's been done to death. However, you look at the 50th anniversary White Album Deluxe, which, you know, I sprung for the big extra large book version that has the surround sound Blu-ray, 
It's got this giant book with all the lyrics, original reproductions, and the cards and everything. It's amazing. And there's a wealth of outtakes and unheard stuff in there. On Beggar's Banquet, you get this... Um, Flexi-disc of Mick Jagger phone interview yeah. in Japan. I mean, it's like, who wanted this? Nobody. Like, there's the piano version of uh, Shine a Light. There's mm-hmm. so much stuff from those sessions that we know ended up on Exile on Main Street or this or that. And, you know, even just knowing what has been attested by the bootlegs, no one in the Rolling Stones community online that I've seen thinks this was an acceptable offering. And furthermore, you know, although I respect Bob Ludwig very much, and I know what he was going for in, you know, trying to get a more, uh, let's say, competitive version of the stereo mix on the market for streaming and for other platforms, um, pound for pound, the 2002 remaster is more dynamic. There are tape problems on both versions. I've compared them over streaming. And you know, it's kind of one step forward, two steps back. Uh, he kind of sheared off the uh, the transient peaks in service of making everything louder. Um, and yes, I, I understand that that's to make it sound the same as other things that are normalized on streaming services. However, if you're talking about an audiophile product, that's really not necessary. Absolutely. And it's already going to be normalized. And I don't see any reason... So the, the theory behind this, from what I've read, this practice is that, you know, when they remaster, you know, Elvis number ones or anything like that, is that uh, it'll be the same volume as your, your Foo Fighters CD. Now, I don't know why these things have to compete. You know, so much of Beggar's Banquet is acoustic, a lot of slower tempoed stuff. There's no mm-hmm. reason why it has to be screaming loud. Uh, yeah, and to be fair, the acoustic numbers didn't really suffer that much from the dynamic range compression that they use in this remaster. But you you cue up Stray Cat Blues, and you know compare it side by side with the old remaster, or even the old CDs from the '80s, which are still you know they're at the wrong speed. The tape is even more worn out than the master they found for these newer ones. Like the new one just sounds more compressed, and it doesn't sound as lively. And that. You know, for a track like that, you really want the drums to kind of punch through and the vocals to sort of hit you over the face, but it doesn't yeah. do that. And and what's interesting about this is that Abco did such a good job in the early 2000s with the SACDs, which are still too bright, and but more importantly, the DSD-sourced vinyl. All of it sounds fantastic, um, you know, and, and I feel very disappointed by this, and... It, it is really just a shame that the Stones aren't in control of this part of their career. Yeah. Because... That's the uh, rub. I mean, you know, you read between the lines here, and yes, we do know that the bootleggers have found outtakes from these sessions, but it's telling that the only thing that hasn't been on CD before, or SACD, I guess, if you're in Japan, they got a two-disc SACD version of this package... Um, is that interview, and the only reason Abco are allowed to reissue that interview is because it was out before. At Ditto with the mono, Sympathy for the Devil. They're just reissuing something that they already had control of. Um, but as I understand it, the, the contract that they have now with the Stones is that they're not in control of anything unreleased. Yeah, so I assume that that's because, um, that that's because uh, things done at these sessions ended up on later albums and they had, they had to have come up with a deal that protected their right. Um, 
probably to do with the publishing. I'm not sure on that, but like Sweet Virginia was done at Olympic Studios, probably closer to the Beggar's Banquet time yeah. than the Nelcott sessions. Right. There's some amount of slicing and dicing that's gone on, obviously, in, in order to allow the Stones to control their rights for the post-1971 uh, era. Yeah, so so what I think is telling about their relationship is that when the Stones wanted to do a greatest hits that had both eras, because you used to be able, you used to have to buy Hot Rocks and then jump back and you know hope for the best. Yeah, and even that didn't encompass everything. But when they wanted to do Forty Licks or Gur, they went to Abco and said, "Okay, let's let's sort this out." What I think is unpleasant here is that Abco didn't seem to return the favor and and go to the Stones because I have seen nothing from the official Stones channels about this edition. Yeah, no promotion whatsoever for it. They're not even trying, and and to me that says the whole thing because you know there there is a so again we don't want to sit here comparing the White Album to Bigger's Banquet, but what I would say is that. The White Album almost needed more care and attention to get it to sound what I would think is is good. But the material on Beggar's Banquet didn't actually need that much work. Like, it already sounds good. Yeah, it sounds you, you don't need to remix Beggar's Banquet. No, and and that would be like Potato Jesus, I think. Yeah. Um, it's one of the few times that I, like, I, I do think there are some things that should be remixed, but I, I don't think you should mess with this. I actually... I would I, like to hear the rest of the album in 5.1. You know, that 5.1 mix of Sympathy for the Devil is pretty pretty awesome. But apart from that, I you know... Yeah, and I would just say that I, I'm not really into the whole idea of what the best album is and this and that, but there is a growing critical uh, movement that says, you know, that Beggar's Banquet is the best album of 1968 and in the long run more important and more things now what i find very interesting about both the white album and beggar's banquet is that neither of them are really reflective of what 1968 sounded like right um, in, in, they are they are both ahead of their time because beggar's banquet i think you could put that album out virtually any time there's none of those kind of stereotypically 60s things like the jack nietzsche arrangements mm-hmm. or Basically, Brickus, you know, there is none of that. It is almost timeless. And yeah. I would say that that's probably more true. The legacy of things like Beggar's Banquet is, you know, things like the Black Keys and this whole kind of lo-fi aesthetic. Because nobody really intentionally destroyed the dynamic range of an acoustic guitar to get it to distort. And, and, and all these things that you would now classify as experimental recording techniques. Yeah, back uh, then it was more than adventurous. It was completely untried in a way. Yeah, and I think that this is an attempt to go back to the way um, Sam Phillips and Les Paul and the the early pioneers recorded. So this is a good segue into you know the project that I think the Stones did feel was worthy of promoting, and that they did actually put a little bit of care and thought and attention into themselves. This is my confession, Mama, and I'm thrilled by all your charm. Well, it seems that I'm in heaven when you hold me in your arms. Well, babe, you can't have me for yourself. You are meant for me, Mama. I don't want nobody else. It's sort of a cliche by now that the Rolling Stones, you know, were a blues band that made it very big as a pop band. And in a certain sense, that is true. But, you know, 
we talk a lot on this podcast about the territory that they explored and sort of mapped out going forward and not getting just stuck into doing one thing over and over again. However, um, it is informative to look back and chart their early influences, trace certain things that they picked up on, obviously songs that they covered and incorporated into their repertoire. And this release, Confessing the Blues, which, um, by the way, proceeds from this are being donated. Oh, 10%, yeah. 10% of the proceeds to Willie Dixon's Blues Heaven, which people may not realize, but is is on the site of Chess Records. Yes, which we're planning a field trip to in, in the new year when we go to Chicago for that Stones concert there. Yeah, I was actually able to get down there uh, many years ago, and I, I met Willie Dixon's daughter there uh, shortly before she died. So, mm. uh, And I played at their Blues Barbecue Sunday brunch thing and nice. and the first time I was ever paid I like to say this it makes me sound much more credible and scary <laughs> but the first time I was ever paid to play music was in Buddy Guy's Legends Club on yeah. the south side of Chicago there you go there was a some music critic I think it was in the liner notes or something but this is one of the most insightful comments about the British blues scene I've ever heard and he was talking about the Stones version of I'm a King Bee which mm-hmm. is on Confessing the Blues and yeah, the Slim Harpo original is here. Yeah. yeah, what he said was um, that it succeeded as being a cover not because it copied the original, but because it translated the original to a different cultural context. For sure. And I think that you can kind of solve the question of is it appropriate for these people to be doing blues and with the Muddy Waters quote that everybody has the blues, but everybody's blues is different. You know, the, the Thames is not the Mississippi, but to a generation of people who grew up as, uh, you know, war children, like literally, right. like we don't, we don't really think about that generation of kids in England as in the same way that we do when we, we look at, you know, Syria or a lot of current conflicts mm-hmm. because, because of this nonsense, stiff upper lip crap, but they lived in, in horrible conditions, horrible poverty yeah. Um, and they sympathized. Even Eric Idle talks about this in the Monty Python documentary that they sympathized with black Americans because they felt so persecuted by the class system or by simply being a young person in a very rigid and unaccepting society. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And more often than not, on the knife edge of malnutrition, because rationing continued, you know, a decade after the war was over in England. So yes. a lot of these kids were growing up kind of like, literally hard scrabbling to get by. Not to say that the Stones necessarily perfectly reflect that experience, but, you know. Yeah, but that they, generation at large. I that mean, generation, yeah. I think that it is telling that, you know, it's very much worth notice, noticing that um, a V1 landed on Keith Richards' childhood home, mm-hmm. and they had to live in the bombed-out ruins of the house. Right. Because there was just simply no uh, no other place to go. That's just sort of the background to this, but... Um, I sprung for the five-disc complete edition of this because there are certain tracks on this that you will not find um, on vinyl, especially um, yeah. anywhere else at this price. I mean, you could spend the same amount trying to track down Big Maceo Merriweather or Amos Milburn. Yeah, just in um, isolation. One yeah. of their reissues is going to run you about as much as this deluxe set would. Yeah, the the reissue of Big Maceo's stuff, the last one was done in the early 80s. You'd 
probably have to order it from Discogs and all this stuff. So, so it's interesting to me that this sort of it serves many different masters in a way. It's uh, it's a hand-picked sort of selection, a kind of rough guide, if you will, to what the Stones considered important influences and what they see as uh, quintessential blues musicians. Um, it is a sort of cross-section of songs that they did have in their repertoire. Um, it also sort of serves as a kind of bridge towards more obscure artists. If you're already familiar with people like Helen Wolf, uh, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, Chuck Berry, then maybe the more obscure stuff on here will lead you in a different direction and maybe check out more of those artists. Yeah, because I got to say, there are there are recordings on this that as much as I, even by some of the bigger artists, there are recordings on this that I had never heard. And uh, it's very hard to find the 1948 Boogie Chillin'. Uh, yeah, it's John Lee Hooker original, yeah. And there's a lot of confusion as to whether the Stones used to do the Bo Diddley song Crawdad or uh, doing the Crawdaddy. And it's funny that Bo Diddley wrote so many songs about Crawdads, but uh, I believe it is the one that is featured on this collection, which I'd never found anywhere else. Mm. Um, and then there's the the Boy Blue uh, Boogie Children, which yeah. I, I don't do not believe is actually related to the John Lee Hooker bo- Boogie Children, except perhaps tangentially. The lyrics are very different. It's a it's a very standard Louisiana form um, that you can hear on uh, the great. Um, Sun Records, uh, 25 Blues Classics right. uh, thing. Um, so yeah, I think if you are a collector or a person who knows a lot about the blues, even then there are things on here that may surprise you and some unexpected choices. Yeah, um, I, that's definitely true. I would offer by way of criticism that the two Chuck Berry songs that are on there are very easy to find, especially sure. on vinyl, and maybe don't even really count as blues. They still sound great. The mastering is good, um, and they're important in terms of telling the Stone story. Yeah. But I would rather have, you know, Amos Milburn or uh, Clifton Chenier or somebody else there because the, the Chuck Berry stuff is in no danger of, of disappearing, really. Right. Um, that's my only real criticism, aside from the fact that I kept having trouble dropping the needle in the right place. I kept dropping oh, yeah. it before, just because of the size of the discs. Yeah, so these are, in the five-disc set, you're getting the same content that you get on the CD and the standard vinyl versions, but um, it is spread out over five 10-inch discs, which are, um, I guess, made to sort of remind one of the 78 RPM acetate discs from this era. And there definitely are advantages with doing it that way and keeping the number of tracks very small in that you don't have to go too far into the disc because the the sound quality and the chances of uh, catching uh, dust or particulate uh, increase uh, the closer you get to the label. So, uh, But it is also, it does change your experience to sort of group songs in smaller chunks. Yeah, and so the only other thing I would say about that is that I do kind of wish that they were organized more um, chronologically. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I listened to the CD version earlier today after having listened to that, the five disc uh, vinyl configuration last night. And it is like, it's ever so slightly shuffled. It is, they did have to, I think, move things around a little bit just to accommodate the side flips. It does sort of have a through line in a way. 
Um, it's hard to explain really, but it is a curated playlist more so than a historical presentation. Yeah. So the one thing that kind of confounds the idea of this being about the Stones' influences is the inclusion of Buddy Guy's um, Damn Right I Got the Blues, which is a great performance and a great track, and I'm really happy to have it on vinyl. Mm. And I'm not necessarily criticizing it, but it's it's interesting to sort of puzzle over the motivation, because I think that that's kind of a, um, uh, an indication that, you know, the blues is alive and well, or at least should be, or to look a little bit forward here. Right. Because yeah, because Buddy Guy is still out there doing the touring, you know, putting in the work, reaching new audiences still to this day. And this is a, not uh, contemporary necessarily, but a more uh, modern day presentation and a recording that dates from a later period in his career. Yeah, it's. I think that's from the 90s. Um, it's very good. It's one of those things that you kind of wonder why it didn't exist sooner. There's a lot of great stuff that you probably wouldn't have even considered. You might not have found people like Lightning Slim or Eddie Taylor um, and uh, Robert Wilkins. The I must say that the they I, I was hoping for this because I have the older uh, King of the Delta Blues singers, Robert Johnson, vinyl. It's very noisy. Yeah. The mastering source that they have for this is um, ghostly quiet. Yeah, and uh, I think they did a lot of work for the Robert Johnson Centennial Collection anthology, which came out a couple of years ago on CD and was just reissued on vinyl, I think, earlier this year for Record Store Day. Um, and those those recordings are 82 years old now, and with the amount of work that they did to restore it, it, it almost sounds like you know, half that age. It sounds like he's in the room with you. And yeah. this is this is something that I found interesting about listening to people like the Reverend Robert Wilkins or the Sonny Terry Brownie McGee stuff is that the less you had to record in those days, um, the better it sounds. Um, mm-hmm. You know... Yeah, one microphone. Yeah. capturing it, everything. And the process and the workflow isn't that different from what we do now aside from the capture medium because if you were going to record a, a guy playing the acoustic guitar and singing, you'd you know, depending on the material and your choices, you'd probably really just put a microphone in front of them and, and you know, move it around, hope for the best. You know, it's a much more documentarian approach to recording. Yeah. And and it's fascinating to me that the gear that they used and the, the engineering practices are much more about um, capturing it in the room and making it sound as good as possible before you hit record and getting it right on the way in and you know because i was stunned to to see that that robert wilkins thing was from the 40s because it doesn't actually sound that much like it no it is you know and it is a virtuoso performance i i had completely forgotten that he had so many verses in the song i guess it's like i mentioned last night it's basically the entire biblical chapter of the prodigal son in song form whereas the stones version of that is sort of condensed down to pop song like well, and it gets it gets to the meat of the matter a little better. I think it's the same kind of thing they did to uh, like a Rolling Stone. Yeah, you know where it's it's just kind of what absolutely needs to be said, and um, you know they're they're very good at editing that stuff. I think that so many of the Stones, the Stones arrangements of Chuck Berry songs for sure. Like when you hear a cover band doing Carol or Around and Around, they they tend to do the Stones versions not the Chuck Berry versions. And right. it's always worthwhile to go back and look at the generation before to see why 
uh, what the, what the Stones actually did because it's such a standard practice now to copy those arrangement styles when they were not necessarily the way that the songs were envisioned. Mm. So what's what's interesting to me now, having you know lived with Blue and Lonesome for a couple of years now and not revisiting it all that much. Um, Despite buying three editions of it. Yeah, having bought the deluxe CD and the vinyl version in the box set and a digital download, um, <laughs> I now own three copies of an album I don't listen to very often. But um, you know, going back to the Little Walter originals that are on here that they dug up, and even the um, uh, Eddie Taylor and... The Otis Rush. Jimmy Reed, yeah, the Otis Rush stuff. Like, you see why those records stand out when you listen to them in context of the other stuff on here a lot of the little walter stuff really blew me away because i i it's it's harder to track that stuff down yeah you know the the chess boxes they did them for willie dixon and for muddy waters and for how and for yeah. chuck berry but they didn't go into uh, little milton or uh the many many chess artists yeah. Etta James, you know, they didn't, maybe they did an Etta James one, I don't know. There's been a lot but, of Etta James reissues, but I don't know. Yeah, I think she might have had her own box set. It's harder to find um, the little Walter stuff. And yes, on, on it's all available on streaming and multiple remasters of varying quality and bootlegs, whatever, illegitimate stuff. But to hear them presented this way, because if you're going to listen to this music, you have to listen to it in the way that it was intended to be heard. Right. And, and I find... I find like when you hear that the snare sound on I'm a King Bee is just amazing. And it's yeah. the same the same thing with the Chuck Berry stuff that in the context of Chuck Berry's life, you know that when he's singing these songs about teenage girls, they're not quite as innocent as they were originally read to be. And, uh, you know, I'll take every chance I can to just come on the right side of that issue and say that this is, you know, untenable. But... The way that those records sound is so um, essential to the foundation of rock and roll. Yeah. The, the production style and the, the way, the fullness. You know, if you listen to a Little Richard record from the same era, it's it's almost like recording, for one thing, the bands are much bigger, but it's almost more like recording jazz or R&B or orchestral music. It's a fuller sound. It's got a wider dynamic range. But what I find fascinating about the way chess worked is that they were pioneering the use of direct input and it's smaller bands. So mm -hmm. the bandwidth that is there goes towards getting a bigger kick drum sound and a bigger uh, presentation for the whole thing. And it's much more modern. It's yeah. much more like the way people produce stuff yeah. now. We recognize Chuck Berry's form as a pop song that you could play alongside a lot of contemporary dance rock music today. Um, there's, that's not so much the case for stuff like Jimmy Reed, but you know, it has a, uh, a quality an evocative quality that when, you know, you listen to back to back all of these different artists, um, you really, as I say, you get the through line that connects where the stones took their influence from what they picked up on. And, you know, while they may not have been directly trying to copy, uh, Billy Boy Arnold, for example, uh, there's something about that approach that comes through in their music. I think that a lot of people are speaking out of both sides of their mouths when they tell musicians or when musicians tell each other, be yourself. Um, this isn't true. It, it, the best example of this is in our society when somebody says, well, how are you today? That's not a question that 
people want answered. Certainly right. not honestly. It's it's a greeting, <laughs> right? So I don't think that people need a lot of encouragement to be told how to be themselves. We know, I think in our core being, this is getting very metaphysical, I think we, <laughs> we know who we are. And I think that musicians have to be more encouraged to work harder at their craft and their technique yeah. so that who they are the, the, becomes more transparent. And blues is the best form, I think, to demonstrate this, I say coming to a point, because when you're playing in a form or when you're playing in an established idiom, it's very easy to say, okay, this is this is the part that is Jimmy Reed's personality. This is the part that's standard to the genre. And then this is the part where uh, Wolf deviates or where John Lee Hooker deviates. And you can hear, okay, these guys are closer. Elmore James and Helen Wolf are closer to Highway 49. And then Hooker's a bit east of there. And, you know, Jimmy Reed comes from Mississippi, but then went to Detroit. And you can hear how this, the germ of the idea from the Mississippi Delta uh, spreads out and... Uh, fertilizes different areas, how it becomes more urbanized with the inclusion of the trap drum kit and then later the electric bass. And Yeah, so you can look at the liner notes and the, the historical explanation on this collection that's included in the booklet, um, and you can sort of piece together for yourself a bit of this kind of journey, uh, if you so wish. I mean, this is certainly not aimed at the streaming crowd, I would say. It's not on any of the streaming services, they do want you to buy the physical copy, go into a store if you can, and get it there. Well, it'd just um, be wildly impractical for me to stream this box set. I mean, how would I even begin? <laughs> I mean, uh, wh while we're talking about the production value of the box set, um, you know, I was noticing that the binding and the uh, the illustrations, those art cards that are included, um, are really, really well done. They're they're beautifully presented. Yeah, all the um, all the photography, all the, the the pictures that are included yeah, in the whole the presentation yeah. of it is is very very sound. Yeah, I will say that the cover art itself, Ronnie's cover art, um, while it was taken from directly, I would assume from his original sketch, um, the reproduction quality is a little bit soft and looks like it might have been you know scanned at a low resolution and then blown up or something like that. But that's a minor quibble. Yeah, um, I, I do have some some issues with the the physical packaging. Uh, there's no inner sleeves to the records. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm struggling to figure out how best to um, store this because I am a a bit of a, a nerd when it comes to this. I have a a first pressing of some girls, and the die cut cover really needs to be stored separately from the rest of the yeah. record as you play it. Like it's important to. Yeah, these things you want to preserve them and and protect your investment. Yeah, archival quality. Yeah, uh, it's not so much about the investment. It's just that I mean, there maybe there is that, but it's much more the fact that things that are not in good shape don't play back well. You know, it's not the same as um, CDs or any other digital format where they're comparatively durable and accessible. You know, the, you have to really um, source this stuff carefully and. You know, the, uh, the reason we ripped these to digital immediately um, is because I don't actually want to play these records that often. I want to capture the way they sound, but I don't want to actually play them because the more you play them, the more they're exposed to yeah, dust sure. and contaminants and potentially damaged. I will say that I feel like the, the CD has a hotter mastering and it, um, it was really kind of pin in the meters while I was listening to it, which... On some tracks was fine, um, on others it was apparent that, you know, 
this was a previous remaster that might have worked in the context of the rest of the artist's stuff, but all thrown together. Um, they might have erred a little bit on the side of making it a bit quieter to, again, just allow some more of the dynamics to come through. But I didn't notice that on the vinyl. And these, uh, we should just be clear that a lot of these are just not what anybody would consider audiophile recordings in the first place. Um, yeah, there's exactly. a lot of like ambient noise and you know even like foot needle tapping. noise. Yeah, <laughs> Jimmy Reed's foot tapping on on uh, Little Rain is pretty amazing. What I did find fantastic about the Johnson recordings is that you don't hear whatever needle noise used to be there, or at least it's significantly reduced, and it's comparable to um, the Charlie Patton records that I have, which are astoundingly quiet. Yeah. Um, and when I go back and listen to King of the Delta Blues singers, it's comparatively disappointing because you have the needle noise from your own turntable on top of the, you know, cutting lathe or whatever it was, the, the directed disc. And then when they when they played back the R. Crumbs uh, 78s, mm. you know, so there's just layers and layers of noise in there. And, and it's just a great gift to be able to hear these recordings in such clarity. And I think that other artists... Hopefully, like Robert Johnson is probably the only guy of that era that anyone knows or cares about, but hopefully... Um, yeah, would that will... we had a, a centennial Charlie Patton collection. A Charlie Patton or a Skip yeah. James or a Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law, or uh, the Mississippi Shakes, you know, right? Yeah, M- Memphis Jug Band. Uh, I would take it, a whole box set of Memphis Jug Band. I have that, that Roots and Blues compilation, but a lot of that stuff sounds pretty rough. Yeah, there's a 180-gram uh, repressing with the R-Crumb cover. Mm-hmm. Um, the guys at BMV at Young and Eglinton stock them, and it's like, nobody buys these. Uh, well, like, because people are terrible. If I got all of the money, I would go and <laughs> go down there and buy them all, of course. Uh, some of these are not sort of old, old recordings. They are more like the Howlin' Wolf stuff from the 60s is presented in stereo, um, which is how it was recorded. Most are mono, though. Yeah. And, and, the whole and, of, I think the whole of the first CD, I believe, is entirely mono. Except maybe everybody knows about my good thing and, and yeah, there are some there are some things that I couldn't tell if they were actually stereo or if it was. I uh, think there are a couple of cases where there's a bit of post production mastering um, to widen it a bit. Like the the Bo Diddley Crawdad track, when I listened on the CD, it was immediately clear that there was like a, a stereo delay to really spread out those maracas all over the place. Um, and, you know, on the on the vinyl, that works well because the stereo image can't be that wide. But on digital, especially on headphones, it's like, whoa, that's a lot of maraca. Yeah. All well, over me. Jerome Green's estate needs that, needs that money. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but all, all told, I think this is a great project. And um, it's much more interesting to me than Blue and Lonesome because it is the original performances. It goes back to their original idea as being a kind of preservation society yeah. uh, uh, for the blues. And to me, Lord knows I love the Rolling Stones, but the original performances just completely obliterate the Blue and Lonesome versions, mm. um, especially the title track. Um, they're so much more interesting. I love the sound of British Grove Studios, and Krish Sharma is a fantastic engineer. and. Mm-hmm. He's, he's working on the new album as well, or has yeah, been the, consistently. The technical fidelity of, of Blue and Lonesome is fantastic, and I think it's probably best served on vinyl, so whenever I buy the box set, I'll, I'll listen to that. But um, 
to me, it's much more it's much more important to get uh, attention and and money and uh, love, honor, and respect going back to the original artists. A lot of people, you know, their idea of blues doesn't go any further than Eric Clapton, which I think is a very disappointing thing. I love that Eric Clapton does cover uh, the Mississippi Shakes on his unplugged record. And I, I want to hear more of that. Yeah. He's one of the guys like Keith Richards who really did immerse himself in this music and, you know, people that he's drawing inspiration from again, would that he had presented a set like this, um, which wasn't exclusively focused on one artist like Robert Johnson. Well, and his Robert Johnson album was one of the most disappointing things I've ever heard in my life. I mean, mm. the, the arrangements on, on unplugged, of the Muddy Waters and Johnson and, and the, the acoustic Delta stuff that he does on the unplugged record are more honest and true to that form than the Robert Johnson themed album that he did, which is really just kind of biker blues with the lyrics of Johnson songs. And right. it's, it's, it's a lost opportunity. And um, so, you know, we hope you'll go see buddy guy and, and and go back and take an interest in these old recordings so that they um, they're alive and somewhere and generating income for the estates and not just sort of Library of Congress yeah uh, things and and if you are in Chicago or or are going to be uh, do go to Willie Dixon's Blues Heaven yeah and maybe we'll see you there if any of you are traveling to the states for any of these shows let us know. Um, I will be in Jersey on the 17th June, the second show, and then I'm traveling probably by train, which I'm excited for, uh, straight to Chicago and meeting up with Christian and our posse there for the show at Soldier Field. We're going to be in Chicago for both shows, the 21st to the 25th, and um, if we have any listeners down there, then maybe we'll have a coffee or something. I don't know. Yeah, we could go, (laughs) yeah, we should go to... South Michigan Avenue and, and pay our respects. Yes. To the spot where it all started. Okay. Well, I think I think we've actually managed to come to a succinct uh, ending. Wow. How about that? <laughs> but when does that happen? <laughs> um, so in, in summary, we would recommend that if you're going to buy one product this year, don't get the Baker's Banquet reissue uh, for your Christmas tree. Uh, get confessing to blues and get the 2002 beggars banquet if you yeah. <laughs> don't already own it because yeah. it's the best it's it's clear vinyl it you know yeah and they don't charge you extra for it so you even if you're a fan of uh high-res digital you can still i think on the high-res download sites get the 2002 um it's in the uh dsd flavor as well as 88.2 kilohertz so get that version if you need a high res version in your and life, then, and then t- bring it into your DAW and roll off the high end, and you'll be happy. <laughs> yeah, it'll just be like you're playing the vinyl. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Um, in conclusion, I think we would say uh, we're excited for the new year. We'll be back with another episode talking about Voodoo Lounge Uncut, but uh, we're excited to get out there and see the Stones back on the road for No Filter 2019. And uh, we'll wish you all a pleasant holiday. And hopefully, we'll have a new studio album to talk about sometime in the yeah, year. one of these days. Uh, so until that time, uh, I've been Tim Lindsay. And I continue to be Christian Bonner. Until the next time we say goodbye. <laughs>